Have you received a nice compliment lately? Um, it's wonderful how those little compliments can pick you up and give you some energy for a period of time. And the compliments may, may vary based upon your, your phase of life in terms of how meaningful they are to you. I remember when Connie and I were young parents, we had um, four children within the span of seven years, and we uh, one time had the unusual treat for us of all six of us going out to dinner at the same time at a restaurant. And that's always a time of trepidation for parents uh, when you get a chance to do that. And so we were at the table sort of like herding cats and trying to get everybody's orders together and, and order. And this, um, these two women were leaving the restaurant. And one of them was um, um, middle-aged. The other one was about um, senior uh, age uh, kind of level. And they came up to their, our table and they said, your children, and there was just maybe a half second pause there, but it seemed like, oh my gosh, what is she going to say? And she said, your children are so well-behaved, it was a delight to be in the restaurant with them today. And man, that just felt wonderful. I mean, it was one of those pick-me-up kind of comments. I think we got months of mileage out of that, that we weren't total, total failures as parents. Um, but, you know, there, there is a difference between a legitimate compliment to encourage, and there's a difference between flattery. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians uh, Paul talks about flattery. Well, what is flattery? Well, flattery is essentially saying something to somebody's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Now, gossip is just the opposite of that. Gossip is saying something behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face. But we're not talking about phony comments. We're, we're not talking about vain flattery. We're, we're talking about what could be the greatest compliment that perhaps that somebody could give us. Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, pays an extraordinary compliment to this very young church. Let's turn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul introduces himself, extends the grace and peace of uh, uh, God to the church. And then in verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In this passage, Paul is commending this young church for their work of faith, their labor of love, how they continued to follow Jesus amidst much 
affliction so that they actually became an example to other people for them to follow as to what it meant to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know that there could be a higher compliment that a believer in Jesus Christ could be paid humbly under God, crediting God for that work. But what an extraordinary thing it would be for somebody to say to us, I thank God for your work of faith, for your labor of love, for your steadfastness of hope. In fact, so good is your example before Jesus Christ that others are talking about your faith so that we don't even need to bring it up to other people. They already know. Well, Scripture does call us to work. And one of the things that uh, I would like for us to take a look at this morning is, is this whole idea of, of working and laboring for the Lord. For The first thing that we see in this passage is that the gospel compels us to believing and loving work. In the passage, um, Paul mentions in, in verse 3, this work of faith, this labor of love. Now, these words for work and labor refer to strenuous effort. It refers to laborious turmoil, uh, excuse me, laborious toil and even unceasing hardship out of steadfast love for others. Now, I know that doesn't sound really exciting. I mean, like nobody's sitting there saying, hey, where do I sign up for this? But if we understand more deeply the meaning of the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for us and redeeming us from our sin and setting us free from it, where he calls us to be a part of his kingdom, where he enables us to follow him in joy and power of the Holy Spirit, then yes, we are excited to be involved in this work. And Paul specifically explains this work as a work of faith and love. In other words, it is characterized by faith and love. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. But whenever we talk about doing good works, it always brings up questions about what is the role of a person's good work and their faith, especially as it regards to their salvation. Is it necessary for a person to do good works in order for them to be saved, to be forgiven from their sins? And there's been a long-standing tension and misunderstanding throughout the history of the church, and, um, and, and it's characterized in two very popular passages of Scripture. Where in one, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear that nobody is saved by works. We're justified by faith alone. In fact, Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But then, if you flip over a few pages to James chapter 2, verse 24, the brother of Jesus writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So, 
This tension between these passages of Scripture and the way that they're understood is highlighted most during the time of the, the Reformation and the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. I bring this up not to criticize anybody or cast any aspersions in any way, but as a means of being able to understand the nature of the, the conflict or the tension in being able to understand, and so that we ourselves are clear in order that we might know that our hope and faith is appropriately placed in Christ. For if you look at the right-hand column, it, it, um, there, there's an equation underneath here where um, and the, the, the Catholic understanding of, of the way in which people are saved is that faith plus our good works results in our being justified before God, that we contribute some merit in some way towards our salvation. And during the Reformation, I mean, this had been the popular teaching for quite some time during that era. And during the Reformation, there was this wonderful rediscovery because Martin Luther was struggling with this idea. Well, what works do I have to do in order for God to forgive me? How many of them, how many are enough in order to know that God loves me and has forgiven me? And then in God's direction of Luther's life, he read in Romans chapter 1 that the righteous shall live by faith and the Spirit convicted Martin Luther of the truth. And he came to realize that it's not faith plus works that results in justification, but it is faith in Jesus Christ that results in our justification plus that leads to our good works. In other words, if, if we look at these two understandings, one, one on top of the other, as the next slide demonstrates, and one understanding, it's, it's faith plus work that results in justification, and the other, it's faith that yields or results in our justification plus works. So both would believe in the necessity of works, would they not? As this slide indicates. But which side of the equation they fall on is of paramount significance. And in fact, it contains eternal consequences for us in regards to our understanding. For if we misunderstand and we think that somehow or another our deeds contribute to our salvation, then we have missed the mark. But rather, we look to the work of Christ fully and completely as the basis of our salvation. But because the Lord has saved us, out of gratitude and love, we seek to honor him and serve him and to love other people with works of faith and love. So you see that both see works as necessary. So what's the difference then? Well, on one hand, the rules are the same, are they not? We're, we're to follow the commandments of Scripture. But the reasons that we keep them are entirely different. One is not to appease, that we do, in other words, we don't do good works in order to appease an angry God for our sin and somehow or another earn our blessings and salvation and forgiveness but rather it is as a result of receiving the grace of Christ, his righteousness credited to us, the Lord paying the penalty of our sin, completely the work of Christ that we trust in to be saved, that we are so filled with gratitude and love that we want to obey the commandments of Jesus. That's what Jesus said, right? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. 
Not, well, love me and then I'll bless you and uh, do good works and I'll, I'll bless you and forgive you. But because I have loved you, you're able to love me and you can express that gratitude and following me and obeying my word. Now, this is one of the, the key fundamental differences between Christianity and most all of the other religions of the world, where those other religions are establishing means and methods whereby people can work their way in order to obtaining favor with God, as it's understood uh, within that system of teaching and religion, so that they can know God and know that their sins are forgiven and know that they're going to enter a place of eternal rest and blessing. The radical difference is in Christianity is that we are not relying on our works in order to get to heaven, but we are relying upon the work of Christ, the Son of God, in our behalf. It's not that what we can do, but we trust in what has been done for us. And once we receive that marvelous gift, it enables us to live an honor to God. So the next side shows both scriptures, but with one formula. Because both men are addressing the issue of works, and they're helping us to understand them. Both Paul and James agree that faith yields to justification plus works. Paul is addressing the issue of works righteousness. People who would think that they have to somehow, some way, contribute to their own salvation. James is dealing with the issue of easy believism. He's talking in the passage about somebody coming into a, a place of worship or um, that is prominent and gets a place of, of prominence sat in the gathering. And perhaps there are other people that, are come, that they see and they notice who need clothing and they need food. And the only thing that's done to them is they're told, be warm and well-fed. God bless you. And James says, no, if you're a genuine believer, you're going to try to alleviate the sufferings of others, and you're going to treat all men with respect and dignity. So James is dealing with the issue, then, of easy believism. I've believed, I'm good. I went down the aisle 18 years ago, and I leaned and knelt at the altar, and I said a prayer. Now, that person may never have been back to church. They may not read the Bible. They may not pray. But they think they're good because they said a prayer at one time. James says, no. A living faith is a working faith. So both men agree that we're justified by faith that leads to a working faith. So yes, the gospel compels us to a believing and loving work. So let's take a look at the idea of a work of faith, the gospel calling us to work of faith. And this is referring to a work arising from a life that has been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, by our own example, by our own personally embracing and embodying the gospel, our lives are a witness to others. You might be familiar with the, the old saying, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. And it's a reflection of the fact of how our lives should be reflecting the goodness and mercy to us that God has given to us in Christ. 
that we would speak from lives that are transformed, that we wouldn't be the kind of people who tell others, do as I say and not as I do. We could have grown up in a lot of households where sometimes that kind of instruction is given, or we could be giving that kind of instruction. And people call us out on that hypocrisy, and they should. Because we should not only talk the talk, we should walk the walk. And as the gospel grips our lives and we are transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, our lives become a wonderful stage upon which the gospel of Jesus Christ can be communicated to others. Paul mentions this in verses 6 through 10. I'm just going to emphasize verse 9, where Paul's talking about the people of Macedonia and Achaia report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is God's work of grace of personal transformation where we gain a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ ruling over all things, where we gain a vision of how the church of Jesus Christ is moving forward and the gates of hell will not prevail against her, where we recognize the gifts that God has given to us and we deploy them in works of service to extend his kingdom. And as people see that transformation of our lives, then we will be operating a work of faith. But there's another sense in which the word faith is used. It's not just in terms of our personal embracing that faith, but scripture also uses the faith to describe the content of the gospel, the objective truths of scripture. Like when we recite the Apostles' Creed, this is what Christianity teaches. It is the faith. And in verse chapter 2, verse 13, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians accepted the word, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. In 1 Timothy 3.9, Paul includes both of these concepts in one verse when he's talking about deacons. He says, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith, that is, their own personal belief. But he talks about how they must hold the mystery of the faith, the truths of the gospel. They must hold it with a clear conscience. It is so important for us as followers of Jesus Christ, not only to embrace personally the truth, but to continue to grow in that truth and to mature. There's a remarkable story about a man named Ernest Shackleton, who at the end of the First World War got together an expedition. He wanted to be the first person to cross the uh, Antarctic. And so he got a crew of men on his ship, the Endurance, and they set sail for the Antarctic. And as things would happen, it became freakishly cold. If you can imagine it getting even colder in Antarctic uh, for that particular time of year. And the boat got stuck in ice uh, as the waters froze. And so that boat was stuck for a long time. And ultimately, the pressure of the ice became so great that the boat started to take upon water. So they abandoned, he gave the order to abandon ship. um, And all of the men left and they were living on the flow, ice flows for a period of time. But what was happening was, as things eventually started to warm up, the ice flows were drifting further and further away from their destination. And so ultimately, 
they, they made the decision that they were going to uh, get off the ice floes. They had actually been dragging the lifeboats along with them. And the 28 men boarded three lifeboats and they made their way to a place called Elephant Island, which was just this uninhabited, desolate little piece of land, but it was actually land. And when they, le- uh, when they disembarked from their boats, it was the first time in 500 days that their feet touched soil. But their ordeal was not over. In fact, in many respects, it was just beginning because there was no chance that anybody was going to come by and see them and rescue them. And so they made the decision that they were going to take one of the lifeboats. He was going to take five men with him. And they were going to make a journey of some 800 miles through some of the most treacherous waters on the face of the earth called the Drake Passage to make their way to a a whaling station on South Georgia Island. And it was a horrific journey. A hurricane came up, waves exceeding 100 feet in height, battering this little boat around. It was just a little 22-foot lifeboat. But miraculously, they made it to South Georgia Island. They were on the wrong side of the island. They had a hike across mountains and glaciers, and they finally made it to the whaling station. Long story short, they were able to get the people that they left on the other south side of South Georgia Island. They were able to get back um, to um, Elephant Island and pick up the rest of their crew. Not one person was lost, but their mission was a failure. Historians have said it's the most successful failure in the history of the world, given the fact that they all survived. But absolutely fundamental to that ship, that little lifeboat making it from Elephant Island to South Georgia Island, was ballast. Shackleton ordered his men to fill the bottom of that little lifeboat with rocks. They put nearly one ton of rocks in that boat. So that boat would be stable when the waves were tossing and the storm was fomenting, and it also enabled them to steer. You see, that is exactly what doctrine, which in the minds of some people is a dirty word, but the deep truths of God as we mature in our understanding of Scripture, it is the ballast that enables us to weather the storms of life being stabilized and enables us to, and it guides us and enables us to arrive at the destination that God has called us to. Yes, we must personally believe the content of the truth of the gospel, but we must also grow in it as well. So every time you're reading scripture, every time you're studying the word, every time you are growing in the doctrine of what scripture teaches, you are adding ballast to your boat that you might be able to withstand the storms of life and be guided in the wisdom and the truth of God's word. And a big component of this work of faith is being absolutely convinced that God is at work. It may not appear to us at the time. We may not see how God is is working. We may be laboring hard and long. Perhaps you have prayed for years and years that a loved one would come to Christ and there's no evidence of anything working. And it would be easy to despair and give up, would it not? But a faith that is rooted in the word of God becomes stable and understands that God is working his purposes. And even though we may not see, seeds are being planted. Seed is being watered, 
And we can trust God to bring forth a harvest in His time and in His way. And so the other component is that not only are we uh, working in faith, but we are, our work is also compelled by love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Some translations translate those opening words as, For the love of Christ compels us. It compels us to grow in our own personal faith. It compels us to work and to love and service of other people to the glory of God and the good of others that they might embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. I think one of the best examples in our era of this type of sacrificial love for other people is exemplified in the very familiar story of, of Jim Elliott and Nathan Saint and three other missionary men who traveled to Ecuador to take the word of God to the Aka people of Ecuador, a tribe that was known for its brutality and its ruthlessness, a tribe that had not welcomed any other outsiders ever before, and the five men decided that they were going to enter this village to share the love of Jesus Christ, and the villagers speared them all to death, and the men's five bodies were found upon the shore. Well, sometime after that, Nathan Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, and Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and her daughter, Valerie, went back to the Aka people to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. After those individuals had taken the lives of their loved ones, they were so compelled by the love of Christ that they were willing to go and offer and extend their personal forgiveness for what had happened, but also to share to them that the way that they could do that was because Jesus Christ had forgiven them. And God did a wonderful gospel work in that place as a result of the great sacrifice of those women and their loved ones before them. And finally, we see that the gospel calls you to work together as a community. In verse 3, Paul says how he remembers before our God and Father, the Thessalonians, your work of faith. That word your is plural. It, he is commending the community together for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Verse 4, for we know brothers, plural, loved by God. Our witness is strengthened as we labor together as a body of believers. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for each other. But you know, sometimes it doesn't work out quite that way, does it? At times there can be hardships and difficulties within the body of Christ. We sort of, in the Christian community, we like those hero stories like Jim and Elliot and Nathan Saint and their wives and sister Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot coming back and the sacrifice that they give and, and the expansion of the kingdom. But sometimes we can overlook the flaws in other people and it gives us a little bit of a distorted view of the Christian faith. Because quite unfortunately, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint did not get along. 
They did not like each other at all. In fact, at one point, Rachel Saint writes in her diary that she didn't even know that if Elizabeth Elliot was a Christian at all, which was absolute hogwash. But because of the difficulties that they had experienced, she began to think very differently about her sister in Christ. Those five men who gave their lives very sacrificially, very courageously, some would fault them for being very foolish for not adequately understanding the people to whom they were ministering, the fact that they hid their plans to visit these people from their leadership because they knew the leadership would tell them no. They went ahead and did it anyway. So what's the point? The point is we continue to work in community even though we're flawed, even though you and I are going to make mistakes, even though me and you are going to sin, and sometimes we fall hard, that nonetheless the Lord calls us together to work the work of faith in each other, and despite our warts and our blemishes and our failures and our weaknesses, the Lord overrules them all so that his strength shines even more gloriously to the advancement of his kingdom. As we close out this uh, this sermon series, I I try to provide a a means of encouragement for you to pray for Westtown Church every week. And this week, you may know that the is the Discovery Weekend, where uh, this coming weekend will be the Discovery Weekend, where folks from Westtown Church are going to be meeting with um, a representative from a a ministry that is going to help the church search for its next pastor, where they're going to put together um, information about where we trust the Lord is leading West Town in the future and the kind of pastor that will be necessary to take us there. So will you ask the Lord to bless the Discovery Weekend? As this team considers the kind of church that West Town desires to become and sets the qualifications for the senior pastor, in order to lead West Town so that it will become known in this community, West Chase and around the world for its work of faith, its labor of love, and its steadfastness of hope. Let us pray.